All right. Well, as uh, we've referenced this morning, there's a lot going on in the world right now, a lot going on probably in our lives, and this is a good place to gather. We've gathered, we haven't given up meeting together, but we've gathered to encourage one another, to spur each other on towards love and good work. So, so grateful for you to be here. We're in the middle of this series that we started beginning of October called First Things First. And the name comes from what Jesus said in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, where he said, seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. And so we're, we're asking these questions. What are the most important things? And Jesus was actually asked that one. What are, what are the greatest commandments? What are the, what's the first most important commandment? What, what really, how do we put first things first? And Jesus went back to the, the, uh, the Hebrew scriptures And the big one that they focused on and talked about loving the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he added to that, loving our neighbors as ourselves. And so Jesus put that as the priority for the church right off the bat. So we're asking these questions this month. What is it? How do we put first things first? What are the most important things as a church? What are the most important things in our lives? And so first week we talked about starting with heart. Uh, There's some advice in the scriptures that say, above all else, guard your heart. Everything you do, everything you say flows out of it. So starting with heart, and that's what Jesus started with too, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Last week, Pastor Emily gave a great vision message um, for our church, and it it taps into the, the early church and the disciples, how they met together. They were filled with the Holy Spirit They were spirit-filled people who were just moved by God, and they were devoted to fellowship, to prayer, to the apostles' teaching and the breaking of bread, and how important that is for for us as a church to be devoted to those things. And so I think you're going to see by the end how it all wraps together. But today we're going to be moving on a little bit, and I want to start by saying that if you have been in the church for any amount of time, by the way, if you're new to church, we're so grateful to have you. We hope you feel comfortable and have a positive experience. But if you've been involved in the church for very long at all, odds are that you've had a bad church experience. Okay, I heard just a little bit of knowing laughter. I actually expected a lot more. (laughs) Probably because it's been a lot more than just one bad church, but maybe a lot. Some of them have ranged from just the frustrating, some to the heartbreaking. Some of us have had these bad church experiences where we've seen them and they've been so frustrating and difficult. Some of them happened here. Maybe some of them happened with me. And I just want to say, as, as a person who represents the church as a pastor, I'm sorry for those experiences. I'm trying to learn, and I'm, we're trying to minimize the hurtful, unnecessarily hurtful church experiences. But they happen because they happen in your families, too, don't they? <laughs> we get wounded in our families. We get wounded with the church. We get wounded. It, it just shows us that the world is broken, But I want to say to you, again, as a representative, thank you for not giving up on the church yet. Thank you for still being a part, because there is light and darkness, there's good and bad, and I believe the good usually far outpaces the bad. But I'm so grateful that you haven't given up on the church. Jenny and I were joking not long ago at some of the bad stuff that we saw from from different, different people in the name of church and said, Sometimes the bride of Christ is really ugly. Sometimes it appears like, why is Christ attracted to us? But he is. Aren't you glad for God's poor taste sometimes? Like Jesus' low standards, 
Rich Mullins once said, don't tell me God loves you. God loves everybody. It just shows God has really bad taste. <laughs> and, and I think there is a component of that. But again, thank you. And I want to talk a little bit. The, the last week I talked about my grandma some. This week I want to talk about my grandpa. He's born in 1933 in Iowa. And he grew up in the church. And uh, as when he was a young boy, his father left his family, divorced his mom, and just left. Now, in that time, there were a lot of churches that would have told his mother, who had the scarlet letter D at the time, divorce, that label, you cannot play the piano for our church. You cannot be a part of the worship team because you have sinned, you have this label, and you're not worthy to be up on the platform. But a lot of churches were doing this. But fortunately, it was not the church that my grandpa was a part of, that they still let her play. And my grandpa does this thing. He talks about that experience because it was really foundational for him. Not long after his dad left the family and he was left with two brothers, a mom, to fend for themselves in a really difficult time to do that, his mom got very sick and died. So one of my big memories, this story always fascinated me because we grew up and it seemed like everything was perfect in our family a lot. I'm from a small town. My grandparents both lived in the same small town, my cousins. We didn't have a whole lot that happened, but my grandpa would talk about his childhood. And my grandpa was also our church worship leader, too. And he would he loved Gaither music. Any Gaither fans out there? Okay. My grandpa was, so we did a lot of Gaither music at our church growing up. And uh, one of the songs that he loved to do was one called The Church Triumphant. And this was my favorite song that he would do when I was a kid because he would sometimes rap. Now, my grandpa didn't really like rap music, but I called it rap to give him a hard time. But he would, what he would do, he'd start singing this song, and then he would tell some of his story. And he talked about when the, the church, when his dad had left, and that he talked about the men of the church surrounding his dying mother and praying for them. And then he would, he would give these snapshots, and then he would ask the question, is this the church? Is this the church? And I always just remember like being fascinated by his, his story and just singing that song, the, and the church triumphant. So we're going to ask that song this morning, what is the church? What's it all about? And one of the fascinating things that I just learned a couple weeks ago, it surprised me, is that church is only, the word church is only mentioned three times in the Gospels. We have four different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and only one of them, Matthew, mentions the word church. And so uh, we are going to go to the place where Jesus first used the word church in Matthew because it's foundational. The other two times it shows up in Matthew a few chapters later, it's just a reference. But here's where Jesus is talking about, this is where Jesus really talked about what the church is and his intentions. Only place, only place in the gospel. Matthew sixteen 13. We're starting with the setting. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. How many of you guys know where Caesarea Philippi is? How many of you know a lot about it, right? This almost seems like a throwaway line to us because for most of us, we don't know anything about Caesarea Philippi. It's not in the scriptures very often. Maybe this is the one place. But we're going to get into the background a little bit. Do you want to know about Caesarea Philippi? Oh, good. Good. Caesarea Philippi was given 
by Caesar Augustus. He was the Roman Empire. He took this land, and he gave it to a guy named Herod. Now, Herod the Great was this really controversial figure. We talk about him every Christmas because he was called the King of the Jews when Jesus was born. Now, there are a few different Herods in Scripture, so it gets a little confusing, but Herod the Great is the first Herod. And he became the King of Israel or King of the Jews. And one of the things about Herod was he wasn't really a Jew. <laughs> so this was really controversial. He had he had some some blood along there, but... This idea of Herod being the king of the Jews was really offensive. And not only was he king of the Jews, but he also was a servant of Rome. He was subservient to Rome. So Herod had, or Herod had this territory, and then later his son, Philip, became in charge of this area, and he decided to name it Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea, after Caesar, the Roman Caesar, and then Philippi after himself. So Philip is another Herod. So it has the name of two different political leaders, Rome and the appointed king of the Jews, who's not very popular. Uh, the, the people do not like this guy at all because he doesn't really represent the people. Caesarea Philippi at this time was not a residential area. It was a Roman government center. So civilians didn't really live here. It was mostly people who were related employees of Rome. So they served the Roman government. So that's where this setting takes place. And I think that's an important detail that we have. So Jesus says next, it's in Caesarea Philippi where he asked in 1615, who do you say I am? He's asking this to his disciples. They're in Caesarea Philippi. We're not sure exactly why, but he's having this conversation. He's pulling the 12 around him, and he's asking, who do you, who do you say I am? Because at this point, they've seen lots of stuff. They've seen miracles. They've heard all kinds of teachings about the kingdom of God. People are whispering about who Jesus might be, some saying he's possessed by demons, some saying maybe he's somebody special, a prophet. And then there's even this one rumor that maybe he's the... Messiah. Um, this, again, this is, this is a really big question here. It's really controversial because what the people of Jesus' time, the Jews living in Israel and Palestine, what they were really hoping for is was that a Messiah. Now, let's try to forget everything we know about the word Messiah. But Messiah means king. Christ is also another word that, that we use. But they were expecting the Messiah... Not to be God, but to be a king, a political leader. And specifically, they wanted Israel to be reestablished as a world power. They wanted to be a light to the Gentiles. And how could they be a light to the Gentiles if Rome had taken over Israel? So this is a really difficult time. And they were hoping that a Messiah would come, a king, a leader, a political leader. And he would set the people free from Roman occupation. So he's asking this question. And in Caesarea Philippi, what do you think that they would, would say if they heard about a Messiah coming? You think the Roman government, you think they'd be happy to hear there's a Jewish Messiah coming to overthrow them? Of course not. But then we have in Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter answers Jesus' question. You are the Messiah. Now, he probably didn't say this too loudly, <laughs> Because if he would have been overheard, this would have been cause for arrest. 
But you are the Messiah. You are the King of the Jews. You're the one we've been expecting to set us free and to deliver us. You're the King. But then Peter goes on and says something, too. He makes an additional comment. The Son of the living God. What Simon Peter says here is politically dangerous because he's challenging Rome's authority. It's also very religiously dangerous because the Jewish people were really steeped in the tradition that the Lord our God is one. And this idea that this man is a God to you seemed to be blasphemous to that idea. So, so Simon Peter is making this really bold declaration. It sort of makes sense to us today in the church, but back then, this is a radical idea. This is the Messiah, and the Messiah, the one who's to deliver us, is the Son of the living God. Now, I say this is politically dangerous, and one of the things that happened is, eventually, the Jewish people, just a, just a generation after Jesus, challenged Rome's authority. They had other messiahs rise to the top, and they said, Rome will have power over us no more. So about 40 years after this, all those who resisted the Roman Empire were arrested, and they were taken to Caesarea Philippi, this very place, and they were slaughtered publicly because they challenged Rome. So they wanted to be, Rome wanted to make a public display of all the Jewish people who refused to submit to Roman authority. So we know from history how dangerous this statement could be, and yet they, they made it. Moving on, so Jesus is, well, how's Jesus going to respond to Simon Peter in this revolutionary declaration? Matthew 16, 17. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. In other words, Jesus didn't rebuke him. <laughs> he affirmed what he said. He affirmed that God had revealed to Simon that, yes, he's the Messiah, and the big surprise, the Messiah is also the son of the living God. No one saw that twist coming. And Jesus said, yes, you're right. This very political and religiously dangerous message that you've just spoken, it did come from God. You're absolutely right. And then Jesus goes on, Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you that you are Peter. He switched his name over from Simon to Peter. We talked about that a few months ago. And on this rock, I will build my church. And there it is. First time we see it in the New Testament. I will build my, who's? My, Jesus, my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And the gates of Hades might also be translated as death. Some people say hell, but death maybe is, is a better way to look at it. Hades were, were the, the gates of, of death. What is the rock that the church is built upon? That's a really, really good question. It's the declaration, it's the belief that, that Simon Peter affirmed that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the King, and the Son of the living God. So again, let's, let's keep asking this question. What is the church? Jesus said the church is his. Let's keep going in our story here. Matthew 16, 19. Because this is the foundational thing that Jesus says about the church when he establishes it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, a Midwestern guy from a small town, this language is a little confusing. I'm not even really sure what loosing means. Do you? I mean, maybe like loosening, (laughs) but I read this and it's kind of confusing. And the language, because we're reading an English translation from, from Greek, Koine Greek, ancient Greek, and uh, the English, most of our English translators followed how the King James did it. And they used this language of, of binding and, and loosing. So loosing, maybe it's like loosening, but I wanted, to, I wanted to look at other translations. And again, most stick with that King James language of loosing and binding. But here's one from the NLT or the New Living Translation, which is more of a paraphrase. So it's a little bit different. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. This one is from a a translation that British scholar N.T. Wright does called the the Kingdom New Testament. Whatever you tie up on earth will have been tied up in heaven. And whatever you untie on earth will have been untied in heaven. And then the contemporary English version translates it as in, God in heaven will allow whatever you allow on earth, but he will not allow anything you don't allow. So let's put up the NIV again, (laughs) the original Matthew 16, 19. So whatever that means, I'm trying to like parse that out. But one of the things that's really interesting when Jesus says, I will give you the keys, that you is singular. You know how English, it's confusing sometimes. Sometimes you is plural. So sometimes we say you all or just you can be plural. This is singular. So Jesus is speaking to Simon specifically. And, and it's in a future tense too. So he's pointing to something in the future. He's pointing to something in the future that's going to happen. This seems awfully related to what the resurrected Jesus comes, says when he comes back. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. What's Jesus saying? He says this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, whatever the binding and loosing means, one of the things that that seems to be clear here is that Jesus is talking about authority in heaven being one thing and authority on earth being a different thing. Even that seems to be some of the temptation when Satan comes to Jesus. But we have these two different types of authority, and Jesus is saying that he has both now. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. All of it's been given to him after he resurrected. Question. Does everyone recognize the authority of Christ? No, right? Authority can be a really confusing thing. Like right now in our world, we're seeing those con- that confusion. Who has authority? There's fights over borders. Ukraine, right? Does it belong to Russia? Does it b- belong to Ukraine? There's, a, there's a, a challenge in the authority of a land. In Israel, in Gaza, Palestinians, and, and Isra- Israelis. Like there's this, this idea. They don't recognize the same authority, and there are these discussions about it. There are these fights, conflicts, because people recognize different authorities. Happened at the foundation of our country, right? 1776, who was the authority at the beginning of the year? England, right? The king of England. Well, people didn't agree with that. 
And he didn't agree with what they said. So just because somebody has authority doesn't mean that everybody agrees on it or recognizing it. And Jesus is making a really interesting claim here, that Jesus has authority. Now, again, authority can be debated. It can, we can try to figure out what it means. It doesn't mean that authorities control everything that happens. But he is claiming to have all authority in heaven and on earth. Let's, uh, again, go back to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, 633, because this, this is foundational. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus' theme and his teaching, he's talking about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is different than the kingdoms of this world. It's so different. It's not recognized by all. It's the already here but not yet, as some theologians call it. It's invisible. But what is it? Because the king of the kingdom of God doesn't live in a palace that we could see. The king of the kingdom of God doesn't have a military that, that we recognize, that we can see to enforce his authority or a police force to, to arrest people who break his authority. If what, we, don't, we don't see the appearance of him. We, we can't see him physically, what he looks like. What is it, though? Jesus said to pray for the kingdom of God to come and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this can be so mysterious to us. Let's go back to our story in Caesarea Philippi. Matthew 1620, because this, this ends the story. It's anticlimactic, so don't expect a big ending. It says, Then Jesus ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Huh? Is that confusing at all? Like, why would Jesus tell his disciples? Not to tell anybody that he was the Messiah. Well, it wasn't the time yet. Again, the Romans would not have tolerated a Messiah, a political Messiah. And the Jewish teachers, the Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law wouldn't have tolerated a son of the living God. Again, it was politically and religiously dangerous. This was not a time where they were to make the strong statement but it was foundational to Jesus' teaching of what the church is. So let's go back to that statement, Matthew 16, 18. On this rock I will build my church. What is the church? We'll ask it one more time. What is the church? Now here's where I get really frustrated about language. English doesn't use the best language to translate it. I'm sorry to say, but Spanish did a better job here. Anybody know the Spanish word for church? Iglesia. Much better word. Because the Greek word is ecclesia. Do you hear that? Spanish, iglesia. Ecclesia. English, for whatever reason, kind of went against that and decided to take a German term, kirche, and church, kirche, that meant building, temple, uh, like religious building. And that confuses us too because like the word that we even use is a building, the word that it came from. But Jesus, when he was talking about the ecclesia, wasn't talking about a church building. He was talking about a people that he was building because ecclesia means gathering of people. The church is flesh and blood, not brick and mortar. 
the church, Jesus was about building people. So with my grandpa, I was thinking about that. His song, let the church be the church. Let the people rejoice. Because it says the church triumphant is alive and well. But maybe we could say, let the church be the ecclesia. The church is the people. It's that foundational belief that Jesus is the Christ, the King. We submit to his authority. He's the son of the living God. And there's power in that belief. There's power when we gather. It's built on that belief. This, this church here, it, the, the gathering that we have, it transcends culture. It transcends race. People are doing this in Israel, in the Middle East, all over, in Africa, in Asia, South America, all over the world. People are doing this. It transcends race, culture, ethnicity, sex. It's every tribe and every nation. And we gather not because we're better than them and it's us versus them but we're gathering under one crown that we recognize the kingdom of god and that jesus is the christ the son of the living god who is the one who is worthy of all blessing and glory and honor in this world we see such a mess but we believe there is one who is worthy of all that honor and glory there is one who is worthy of truly being followed so today we're talking about as we wrap up here loving the lord our god with all of our mind And that was the foundational belief of the church, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. As Pastor Emily said last week, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. This is about just Jesus' divinity, his, his worthiness of being followed. That's why we've gathered here. So I'm just going to ask this morning, if you want to be a part of that kingdom, just stand and pray with me. We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer before we go into a song. So just stand up if you want to. This is how Jesus taught us to pray. We submit to Christ's authority, so we pray as he taught us to pray. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, holy is your name.